Turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. Leviticus, chapter 16. That's where most of my remarks will come from. Also, jump over to Hebrews at least once or twice. But Leviticus, chapter 16. What day of the year excites you the most? That depends on who you are. And how old you are. If you're a child, it might be Halloween. Because you get to dress up in cool-looking costumes and go around getting candy. Extorting the neighbors. (laughs) Not really. Uh, Maybe it's the 4th of July. Beautiful fireworks displays that go off at night. Maybe it's Thanksgiving. Family gatherings, the preparations, the food cooking during the day, and the families coming in and have this nice meal and time of togetherness. Maybe it's Christmas. The bright lights, the tree decorated, the houses decorated inside and out, presents under the tree. Again, families getting together, the songs of the day. Maybe it's Easter, which is coming up soon. Time when the Christian world looks toward the remembering the resurrection of Christ. And of course, we're here today to remember his resurrection as we do every Lord's Day. But Easter Sunday is kind of a special day for many people. For the Israelites, it was probably the Day of Atonement that we read about in Leviticus chapter 16. An annual sacrifice for the nation of Israel. All of their sins would be forgiven and carried away from them. Can you just imagine what that would have been like when Aaron goes into the ceremony of the day and after they've spent time in preparation, and we'll see some of that later on in my lesson, and when it's finished, the sigh of relief that they felt knowing that God had forgiven them and carried their sins away. But it wasn't totally sufficient. Because it might be later that day, it might be the next day or the day after, the week after, that they would sin again and they would be aware of that and they would have to go back and offer the appropriate sin sacrifice. But then a year later, after the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, uh, in our modern day talking, because Kippur is the word for atonement in Hebrew. The Day of Atonement, Yom being the day. So once again, they would have to go through it all again. As I was preparing the lesson, I started thinking about pickup that we now have. I remembered and that what my dad had told me several years ago. You want to, you know, because I was thinking, I'll get a black vehicle. Because, you know, black, it's not going to show the dirt. Boy, was I wrong. You get, you wash that thing and you get a little film of dust on it four hours later and it looks terrible again. Now, a white car, he said, doesn't show the dirt. Well, that's true to a point. But when you're driving down a muddy country road, 
after some snow and some snow melt or some rain, white car shows the dirt pretty bad too. But it doesn't show that light dust that you get on it until you get a little sprinkle or something. This morning, as I announced, my lesson is on the Day of Atonement. And in this section of our study, and this looking at the shadows of Christ to come, you see the shadow of Jesus on the cross. As we study Leviticus 16, you see what God was foretelling in the day of atonement sacrifice that would be later realized in Jesus. But first we need a little background on the day. The object, the purpose, the necessity of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was for sin as God accounts for sin. You see, we are interesting in that we don't equate sin like God does. Oh, that's just a minor little thing. And for God, no, it separates. No matter how small the sin is, it separates us from God. And so in Leviticus, as we said and we've read before, when we studied the sin offering, the trespass offering, if someone commits a sin in ignorance, that is without consciousness of the sin, man might ignore that. He didn't even realize it happened, but God sees it and could not, not see it. Man could ignore his sins, but God would not. They had to be covered by sacrificial blood. So this day would show the nation of Israel that that all sacrifices that they were offering, though, were going to be inadequate for sin. Because they didn't have to think about it very long after the next day or the next week to realize what just happened wasn't sufficient. Or the next year, didn't we do this last year? And so the day would be a prophecy pointing to Jesus. The timing of the day was significant. It took place on the, in the tenth day of the seventh month. Both are symbolic numbers with great meaning in Hebrew culture. Ten mean equaling completion and to, to the totality of God's work. We had the ten patriarchs. We had the ten tribes, or we had the, and I've lost it, it just flooded right out of my mind. Thank you, Bill, for laughing. Ten, a number of great importance. Seven, also symbolizing the completeness of God's work. For it was on the seventh day that God rested from creation. So on this day, it was a day that they probably looked forward to with mixed emotions. About a month before they started knowing, going through the preparations, reminding themselves so that they would do it just perfectly. Because for the Day of Atonement, these, well, there were some elaborate and very imposing preparations required of the people and the priests. The people were expected to spend the day in a solemn convocation. They would assemble at the tent of meeting, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 34. In Leviticus chapter 23, I'm going to read that one for you, because this kind of sets the day. Leviticus chapter 23. Well, get it in there somewhere. Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement 
It shall be for you a time of a holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that day, that person I will destroy among his, from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening. From evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. This wasn't an ordinary Sabbath time. This was a special day. They had to afflict themselves. No work was allowed. They were to deny themselves, afflicting themselves, mourning for their sins. There carries with this the idea of fasting. And anyone who didn't enter into that spirit of that day, was, as we've read, was going to be cut off. That would be significant. So you know as that day grew closer, it grew closer and closer with maybe a little fear and trembling. But with anticipation of knowing that their sins were going to be taken away. Now the priest had to go through some preparations. The high priest specifically. The first time it would have been Aaron. Aaron had to make special preparations for the day. We'll discuss some of those in greater detail in a moment. But all of the people, all of the other priests took their place with the people outside the tabernacle courtyard on that day. They stood on common ground with the nation of the sinners that day. Atonement was made for them by Aaron and Aaron alone. Each individual Christian was expected to identify with the spirit, the mood, and the attitudes of the day. Or else, as we said, he would be cut off. You think about that and think about how easy it is for us to come to church on Sunday mornings. Where's our attitudes? Are we really entering into thoughtfulness of the things that we're talking about? That we're hearing. But that's another talk for another day perhaps. But we want to now see what the high priest went through. And how his shadow is pointing to Jesus. The anointed of God who would become our mediator. So the day is coming together. The crowd's gathering. They're quiet. They're reverent. They're a little bit afraid. As I've indicated. They gather around the tent of meeting. Aaron's sons are out there with them. This was the great day of atonement, the day that God himself had appointed. And Aaron at this time was their high priest and would be their mediator. When Aaron would stand between them and God, because he was their high priest. On this seventh month, the tenth day, atonement would be made for their sins. The atonement would provide the way for them to be at one with God. It would remove their sin. Now Moses' brother, Moses as we know was the brother of Aaron, the high priest. He was the one chosen to be the mediator at first. Chosen to stand between God and the Israelites. Quite an honorable position, a high position. But still, Moses was not allowed to go into the holy place. The holy of holies. Only Aaron was allowed. And that only once a year. Only one day out of the year could he go into the most holy place of God. The most holy place was located behind the thick veil in the tabernacle. 
This was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. On top of the Ark of the Covenant were two angels, cherubim, angelic beings, not the cute little baby angel cherubs that we see in common days today. No, these were guardians, if you will. They prevented Adam and Eve from returning to the Garden of Eden when God cast them out. They were not to be messed with. I don't know exactly how they looked, but their wings were folded down, bowing their heads toward the center. And it was above that center where the cloud, where God's presence dwelt. And so Aaron goes in there, and again, only one time a year. So can you imagine just how Aaron was feeling at this time? Now, prior to getting to the chapter 16, we have chapter 10. So just flip back over with me, if you would, please, to chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put, put fire in it and laid, it on it, laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. That had to be something. I don't know what Nadab and Abihu offered. Strange fire. I don't know if it was their attitude in preventing it. Obviously, it says unauthorized fire, strange fire, some translations. But it was something they weren't supposed to do. That Maybe they were supposed to take it from the... The fire from the burnt offering, the daily burnt offering. Not exactly certain. But God was displeased because Nadab and Abihu didn't count this as something very important and a solemn occasion. That's got to be in the back of Aaron's mind. So he's preparing himself and he doesn't want to mess up. So he prepares himself. He must have walked slowly through the holy place, passing the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and finally the altar of incense. He bows low, his head low, and walks past the thick veil, and now he's in the most holy place, carrying the blood. As he turned, there was the glory of God. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 28, we're not going to turn there, but in verses 35, it tells us that they sewed pomegranates at the hem of his garment, his priestly garb. And in between the pomegranates were golden bells. This was so God would know that Aaron was in the holy place. It was also so that the people would hear the bells. Tradition tells us that they also tied a rope around either his waist or his ankle. Because if Aaron messed up, they weren't going to go in there and get him. Because they would pull him out. If the bell stopped ringing, that was a bad sign. And you know that had to be on Aaron's mind, as well as the mind of the people. The God of Israel, our God, is a holy God. Man, even if he's the high priest, could not just simply crawl out of bed, get up in the morning, take a quick shower, walk out of his tent, and go into the presence of God. There are certain things that the, holy, that the high priest had to do. Before he could access, enter into the Holy of Holies. If he came in without meeting that standard set by God, he would probably suffer the same fate of Nadab and Abihu. 
the sons of Aaron. So Aaron had to bathe himself. He had to put on the sacred garments. The high priest had to be spotless in dress. Because Aaron was not without sin, he had to first offer a sacrifice of a bull for his sins and for the sins of his family. He had to be ready, ceremonially clean and pure, before he could take in the blood of the sacrifice into the presence of God and make atonement for the people. So every year the high priest had this heavy burden of being the mediator between God and the people. And every year he would offer the same sacrifices. Every year this responsibility fell to him and to him alone. No one was allowed to be with him or help him in this task. That's a tremendous weight on his shoulders. A burden so high that it just, that's when you're looking at it, maybe with this fear and trembling. What if I mess up this time? I sure hope I don't. Because he knew the stakes were high. But he also knew that a year from now I'd have to do it again. And so he would do all that he could do and follow what God had said. But as we said, this was but a shadow. The reality would be Christ. Aaron was a good high priest. And over the next 1400 years, there were probably some excellent high priests. And they did the best that they could do, but they were merely men. Today we have a high priest, and our high priest is much greater and far better than Aaron or any of those in his lineage. Jesus is our high priest. And in light of the revealed word of God that shines on the Old Testament high priest, we really see it's a portrait of Jesus. From the priestly garb that he would wear to the sacrifice that he would do. He was the one who would stand up for the people. And the book of Hebrews is written to show Jews who were in danger of going back under the law. Well, not to, because Christ was a superior way. In Hebrews chapter 7, and for just a minute we're going to be in Hebrews, starting in chapter 7 and verse 27. Catching it in the verse 26 of the paragraph, for if indeed it was, for indeed, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And then jumping down to chapter 9 and verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since, the, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. <clears throat> Jesus, our high priest, he was a better, a better mediator. And in chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time the single sacrifice for sins, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all those, for all time, those who are being sanctified. Jesus, a better high priest. In Jesus was the glory and the splendor, the power of the high priest coming to life fully. It was not the shadow, it was the reality. 
As we mentioned earlier, how Aaron bore that heavy burden of responsibility and alone, so did Jesus. Upon him was the pressing and ever-increasing weight upon him. He was on his face praying in the garden. He was tired, maybe somewhat afraid, because yet he would have to experience something he had never experienced in his life. But he was determined to do his father's will. He saw in the distance flickering lights and torches of those who were coming to arrest him. He knew his time was at hand when he would stand before Jewish leaders and Roman leaders. His back was going to be whipped as he faced a Roman scourge that tore across his flesh. Beatings, mockings, insults, pains, nailed, a cruel wooden cross was before him. As he stood up from a place of prayer, he watched his disciples after they had previously been asleep with him. He watched them scatter. No one could help him as he performed his high priestly duty. And even the Father would turn his back on him. So Jesus, our high priest, is far better than any other. So think on these things as we end this portion of the lesson. Aaron was spotless in dress. Jesus was spotless in character. Aaron entered the earthly tabernacle. Jesus, the heavenly one. Aaron entered behind the veil. Jesus ripped open the veil. Aaron offered for his own sins. Christ offered only for our sins. Aaron entered once a year. Jesus entered once for all time. Aaron offered for the whole nation. Jesus for the whole world. Aaron offered many sacrifices. In his lifetime, Jesus offered one. Aaron offered the blood of animals, but Jesus offered his own blood. The shadow is like seeing a vague outline of an image. But in the New Testament, we see the image. We see Jesus revealed. And now for the sacrifices on that day, what were they? Well, I've already noted that Aaron would have to offer a bull for his sins and for the sins of his family. But that was just for him, so he could mediate between God and the people. The atonement sacrifices for the people involved, in Leviticus chapter 16, two goats. One writer said these goats were Syrian goats, a graceful, dignified, and clean animal, often used as symbols of leadership and loyalty, very highly appreciated by the Jews, and were one of their most valuable domestic possessions. This was not an ordinary day. We know that they had to bring an animal that was without blemish and spotless. For this day, we're told that probably what they did was they would bring it and set it apart, maybe several of them, for seven days, observing them closely each day, just in case one might not make it. But they wanted nothing to happen to that animal at all. They didn't want it to get attacked by a wild animal. They didn't want it to fall into a hole and break a leg. They wanted that animal perfect, so for seven days they were watching and tending it. I've been seeing stuff at the fairgrounds coming in, and I know how some of the 4-H kids are that raise an animal. They're out there grooming them and feeding them and watching over them and taking care of them. And that was They were doing things like that, only even in a greater way. Aaron was brought the two goats, and he would bring them to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The fate of each goat would be determined at this point in time. One goat was to be sacrificed. The other goat would be what we call the scapegoat. 
So in Leviticus chapter 16, oops, somehow I lost my marker. Leviticus 16, it says this. Let me find it now. Then he shall kill the goat. Well, I'm in the wrong place. One, two goats, one for the sin offering and one for a burnt offering. And what they would do, they would tie a ribbon. They would cast lots. They didn't make the choice. The lot would fall to one. A ribbon would be tied on its horn, on the goat somehow. And it would be killed. The other one was set aside. Aaron would lay his hands on both goats. The one slaughtered, transferring the sins of his and the, the people to the goat. And it was sacrificed. Israel's sin demanded an offering. It required the payment of a price. And as the knife came down on the throat, it killed the goat. And blood was caught and captured in a bowl. It wasn't enough, though. It wasn't enough merely for the blood to flow. It had to be accomplished. It had to accomplish its purpose and that it had to be carried by the high priest into the Holy of Holies to the presence of God. The first goat symbolized the payment price. The second goat symbolizes the people and the results of the atonement. Aaron placed his hands on the head of the second goat then, confessed their wickedness, sin, rebellion, and then it was sent out, let out the, outside the camp by a man to a faraway place. And here's where tradition would tell us as well that they would make sure that goat fell over a cliff because they didn't want that goat wandering back into camp and bringing all their sins back with it. Now that's only tradition. And I can see that is probably what they did because they would be very, very aware this goat has all of our sins all of the several million of us, of the nation of Israel, we don't want it back inside the camp. Whatever they did, it went out far. But these goats were but a shadow of Jesus. For 1,400 years, God had watched from heaven the sacrifices of lambs, rams, goats, and bulls, merely a rehearsal time for the true atonement that would be in Christ. As Jesus was led out of the garden, the moment of truth was at hand. The true Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world would be led, tied, and bound like a lamb going to slaughter. With vindictive, cruel hatred, they would beat him, mock him, whip the Lamb of God. They would lead his tired, battered body up the road of Golgotha, carrying a wooden cross beam. How did God look down on this from heaven? Several years ago, Max Lucado wrote a book titled Six Hours, One Friday. And it captures in detail perhaps his idea of the thoughts of God, so bear with me. Soldiers, you think you let him? Ropes, you think you really bind him? Men, you think you sentence him? He heeds not your commands. He winces not at your lashes. It's my voice he obeys. It's my condemnation he dreads. And it is your soul he saves. Oh, my son, my child, look up into heavens, see my face before I turn it, hear my voice before I silence it. Would that I could save you and them, but they don't see and they don't hear. The living must die so the dying can live. The time has now come to kill the lamb. Here is my cup, my son, the cup of sorrows, the cup of sin. Slam the mallet, be true to your task. Let your ring be heard throughout the heavens. 
Lift him, soldiers. Lift him high to the throne of mercy. Lift him up to the perch of his death. Lift him high above the people who curse his name. Is there no angel to save my Isaac? Is there no hand to redeem the Redeemer? Here is my cup, son, my son. Drink it alone. Every lie, every lure, every act done in the shadows was in that cup. Slowly, hideously, they were absorbed into the body of the Son, the final act of his incarnation. The spotless lamb was now blemished. Flames begin to lick at his feet. The king obeys his own edict. Where is the poison? There will, where is the poison, there will be death. Where are the goblets? There will be fire. The king turns away from his prince. The undiluted wrath of a sin-hating father upon his son, sin-filled son. The fire envelops him. The shadow hides him. The son looks to the father, but the father cannot be seen. The son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus shed his blood, paid our penalty, suffered our death so that we wouldn't have to. He rose from the dead so we might rise. He carried his blood of atonement into the throne room of the Father, removing your sin and mine. We've looked at the priest and the sacrifice. There's still a little bit more, so we turn back to Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 29 through 31. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of that month, you shall afflict yourselves. And you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourselves at a statute forever. But we noted earlier that some might, well, they may not afflict themselves as God would have it. And they would be cut off. So what that tells me is they had a decision to make. Were they going to enter into the spirit of the day and focus their attention on what God was doing and what Aaron was doing for them? The simple fact that atonement, the atonement sacrifice was made did not guarantee that the individual Israelite would benefit. They had to prepare themselves. They could not come to the day of atonement half-heartedly. They were to deny themselves and come humbly before the Lord, recognizing and acknowledging their sin and their need for atonement. And so we look at the shadow and we look at the light. We look at the reality. Jesus' death and burial and resurrection has made our atonement possible. His sacrifice gives us forgiveness of sins and eternal life, a great possibility for everyone. He's made it possible for you and me to be safe from our sin, to live an abundant life here on earth while we wait to go home in heaven. And so we look at the shadow one more time and we see the possibilities that are ours by submitting completely to Jesus. And so this is the time of our commitment as we look forward to maybe Easter Sunday when we'll be together with family and friends and as we look forward to being reminded of these things of the shadow, we always come to the question as we close a lesson like this, have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? It's true that Jesus conquered death and paid the price for sin, but that in itself doesn't mean that everyone is saved. We have to come humbly to Him, deny ourselves, and be obedient to Him which teaches that to be forgiven, we have to have the atoning blood 
The blood of Jesus must be applied to our lives. So the call is, repent and be baptized, each one of you, so that your sins may be forgiven. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you stand in need of. But I also know one thing. That is, we look at 1 John chapter 1. It tells us a little bit more. You see, I talked earlier about my black truck and how it just get a little dust on it. It has to be washed all over again. An hour later, it probably needs it again. Jesus' blood is continual. He tells us that if we walk in his light, we have fellowship with God. He says in verse 7 that if we walk in the light, he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. Cleanses, or His son cleanses us from all sin. You see, Jesus' blood cleansed us from the sins done yesterday, but it cleanses us from the sins of tomorrow. That's what the blood of Jesus does. Superior to the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus' atoning blood only saves those who humbly obey God's word and follow him. So where are you today? Do you stand in need of the invitation of the Savior? You may. Maybe you've not been born again. I don't know. Maybe you have been and maybe you've strayed. Maybe I haven't approached God like I should have been. I know it's caused me to think about some things. If you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, won't you please come to him while we stand and while we sing?